Today's guest's story starts with her volunteering as a teacher in a Cambodian school and ending up as a human rights activist. Between those two endpoints, there was a lot of stories and we covered that today. She's really remarkable and if you're like me and didn't know that orphanage tourism was a thing and that children were being taken away from their families to satisfy an orphan tourism industry, well today is going to open your eyes because it certainly did for me. She's dedicated her life to educating organisations, faith groups, private schools and the tourism sector as well as well-meaning donating public of the inherent and damaging issues of orphanages. She's been instrumental in assisting with modern day slavery legislation passed in the Australian Parliament and continues her efforts in assisting corporations in achieving aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Ladies and gentlemen, Lee Matthews. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in. To bring on the inspiration. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's certainly uh, a tourism, orphanage tourism I had never heard of and it's something that I never knew that there was an issue with. So I think it's an important um, discussion that needs to needs to be had. How did you get so heavily involved in Cambodian Cambodian? Orphanages. Why can't I say that country's name? <laughs> um, look, I I ended up in Cambodia after um, a long time travelling overseas, um, and started off volunteering there, and that very quickly kind of changed. Um, I wasn't really wanting to continue with the volunteer work that I was doing um, mm-hmm. for, for various reasons, which I'm, I'm happy to go into in a bit later. But I um, ultimately ended up setting up a, a not-for-profit in Cambodia and working on human rights and child rights issues. And wow. Yeah. How did you end up in Cambodia in the first place? Uh, I was pretty lost in the sense of, you know, after school, not knowing what I wanted to do uh, or be in life uh, and I think I probably thought that the answer to that would come to me if I went overseas and I was always you know I always had really itchy feet I wanted to get out of Australia from as early as I can remember and go traveling so yeah. I finally saved up some money and headed off uh, overseas on a working holiday and I, I first I went to Canada and that just kind of extended and I ended up in the US and Europe and eventually I decided it was time to come home and I think I thought that I'd, I'd decided what I wanted to be at that point. Mm-hmm. I would have been 23 by then. Which and was what? What did you want to be? I wanted to be a naturopath apparently. Ah, so did I at one point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I enrolled in uni to study naturopathy and I thought, look, I'll, I'll just kind of stop by Southeast Asia on the way home mm-hmm. um, and do a bit, you know, maybe a six-month kind of stint traveling through Southeast Asia before I come home and start knuckling down. And, um, and then I thought that I would do a volunteer uh, role in Cambodia, which was to be my last stop in Southeast Asia. And, um, I, I ended up doing some traveling through Laos and Vietnam and turned up in Cambodia ready to be a volunteer. And it was my first time I'd ever volunteered in that context. I had volunteered, um, prior to that, but it was a very different experience. Um, I'd volunteered in an exotic animal rescue shelter in New York. Wow. Which was my, my I was going to say Texas. I thought it was going to be Texas, <laughs> no. not New York. <laughs> no, no, didn't, uh, didn't meet him. Um, <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I had organized with, uh, charity to volunteer as an English teacher in a remote village in Cambodia, in the northwest of Cambodia. And um, I turned up very eager, very naive, and I had to cycle about 25 kilometres out to my village. And I walked in and I was confronted by this 
room, this classroom full of, you know, about 150 kids and parents looking in the window and cows looking through the window and chickens on the floor. And I kind of went, whoa, I'm not qualified for this. Um, but you know, I, I kind of knuckled down and I did what I needed to do. And, but over the, over the weeks or as the weeks went by, I realized that this is wrong. This feels wrong. Um, I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And these people, these parents and these children think that I do simply because I'm here. Um, Why were the parents looking through the window? Was it because you were a novelty being a Westerner yeah, or is it yeah. because, okay. Yeah, it was a novelty, um, you know, it's a new person, very small village, you know, yeah. I think. And it was just, it, it felt very wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on exactly why. I didn't have the words or the framework to understand why I felt like I shouldn't be there. Um, and I think you, you know, you have this moment of you go, oh, this is just imposter syndrome. You're, you're mm-hmm. doing, you're doing a good thing, Lee. And eventually it got to the point where I was like, no, I'm not doing a good thing. This is not good. This is not helpful. Um, so I pulled out of my volunteer placement, but I didn't leave Cambodia because I'd become pretty, um, I guess, enamored with the country itself. Um, I loved being there. I got myself a job in a bar. Um, and I thought, look, I'm, I'm going to stick around as long as I intended and then I'll, I'll go home. And I then decided to do a little bit of volunteer work in the local children's hospital, which made more sense to me because it was admin work. And Uh I thought, look, I can do that. I can file things and type things. It's totally fine. Um, so I did that and, and I got to know a couple of the families, the street families that lived around where I was working and living. And mm. I came to realize that they had no access to healthcare at all. They weren't attending the, the local children's hospital. They weren't allowed to go to the other hospital. Um, and a lot of the kids were very, very unwell as were their parents. Um, and I realized that there was a, you know, they were scared to go to the hospital. Um, there was a lot of stigma around those children or, or their parents coming to a hospital and accessing healthcare. And it was a pretty significant problem at that time that wasn't being met in the community. Um, and I went around and I said, look, who's working with these families? And it was a Siem Reap was a very small town at that point. Um, and, you know, I, I talked to various different NGOs that were working there and they all said, no, no one's working with these families. There's a place in Phnom Penh that works with street kids, but, you know, they only come up here once a month and so on. Um, and so, how, did you, how did you develop that relationship with the street families? Um, well, working in a bar. is one thing um, because all the street kids hang around the bars um, obviously because they're tourists there and they give money and the drunker the tourists get the more money they give Um, and so you see kids begging and hanging around bars and you get to you start to learn the local language talk to them and you're kind of keeping an eye out because obviously not all tourists are good people um, mm. there's a lot of sexual exploitation of children that goes on in, in that context. And so you're kind of keeping an eye out for those kids and you're seeing them every day and you see, you get to know who they are and who their parents are and why they're there. And, um, so it, it was kind of a, a process of, of getting to understand or familiarize with those families and those issues in particular. Um, and then, working in the bar, you also get to meet a lot of tourists. We were, there was only three bars in town at that point. Um, a lot of backpackers, a lot of volunteers coming through. And I happened to meet a group of Canadian paramedics that were doing a, um, a, like a volunteer trip. And I got chatting to them about this issue and they said, well, what if we, what if we organized you know, to, to see these families and treat them and, or at least assess them. And so 
I organized a clinic on the street out the front of the bar uh, and let all the families know. And hundreds of kids turned up on the day to be assessed with um, by this, by this street clinic, these paramedics. And we coordinated with the local hospital and referred the, the, you know, the more serious cases to hospital. Um, And I guess that, was the start of it for me, the the start of my, I guess, interest in this space, in mm. international development, um, in social justice, in activism. Um, and I went on from there to keep doing things like that and eventually set up a charity, um, which was registered in Australia. And I spent the next five years coming back and forward from Cambodia to Australia uh, and raising money and um, running running various programs in Cambodia. And, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I got to know the, the context of, of children that are either on the street or outside of their family's care, whether that's in orphanages or other places, really well. And um, that's it, it all kind of cascaded from there. <laughs> Why is there such a stigma for the street families to go to the local hospitals? Um, well, there, there's a few reasons. They're very much looked down upon by mm-hmm. other members of the community, so there's a sense of shame around that. Um, healthcare costs money in Cambodia. If you mm-hmm. don't have money, you don't get healthcare. Um the quality of care is not great uh, in many places. Um, and so I think there's a fear as well. But there's also a cultural issue around um, spiritual beliefs about hospitals and, and death and spirits and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the combination of all of those things, you know, um, no no education, very serious trauma, substance abuse issues, mental health issues. Um, they all kind of come together in a melting pot and, and cause significant barriers to accessing healthcare. Were the paramedics overwhelmed when they saw how many street kids turned up on that day? Um, yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty intense day. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, they were probably overwhelmed. They were, um, they were groups that were um, fairly used to doing kind of what you would call mission trips, I guess. So not not too much, um, mm-hmm. but I think you know it was what was overwhelming was the the breadth of health issues that were being faced by these communities. What sort of health issues were they? Were you finding? Um, you know, serious disabilities, um, you know, uh, physical, um, and mental health issues, um, you know, standard things like scabies, uh, malnutrition, dental problems. Um, yeah, it's, it's the whole range of, you know, easily treatable or preventable things to very, very serious issues like heart issues and things like that. So who paid for the serious ones that then went on to hospital? Who paid for their treatment afterwards? Um, so we referred them to a children's hospital, which is a charitable entity. Um, okay. And so all their treatment was free. It was just the barrier of, of getting them there, so getting over yeah. those issues. Okay. Oh, that's a lot for your first sort of um, exposure into that sort of sort of world. So the not-for-profit that you set up and that you worked on for the following five years after that, talk me through that. What was that about? Uh, so we it was called Future Cambodia Fund um, and mm-hmm. we started working like in, in that area. So access to healthcare for underserved communities. Um, And then we expanded our work into um, working with uh, communities that live in a floating village around hygiene and health. And at the same time, I had to earn some money. And so I was doing some, um, a little bit of consulting work here and there for a human rights organization um, and, and on an incredibly big learning curve. Um, and around uh, a, a couple of years in, um, we 
Cambodia experienced a, a big spike in what we call land grabbing um, and government-supported private companies were stealing land from very poor communities and forcibly evicting them. Um, so coming in with bulldozers and bulldozing their their whole communities so that they could build big, you know, big high-rises and businesses on those. And what they were doing was uh, people were protesting, obviously, this is their homes, their land, their livelihoods, but they were coming in in the middle of the night and bulldozing houses while people were still there. Um, and ultimately it all kind of came together with uh, a um, an eviction, a forced eviction in a community in central Phnom Penh called Dekrahom. And um, a couple of up to about 5,000 people were forcibly evicted from their homes in the middle of the night in the pouring rain and placed on trucks. Their houses were bulldozed, so they had nothing, just what they could grab. And they were placed on trucks and taken over 20 kilometres outside of the city to what was effectively an empty field slash rice paddy that was flooded. And they were dumped there with no transport, no healthcare, no schools, no housing, no nothing. Um, so imagine. Is this alleged or is this actually evidence? Oh, no, this and actually evidence. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of evidence on this. If you're interested, look up forced evictions in Cambodia in a community called Dekrahom, D E Y, and then another word, K R A H O M. And so effectively you've got 5,000 traumatised people, very poor people um, with nothing in a rice paddy overnight in the rain flooded. Um, So there was an emergency response from the, the NGO community and we were part of that emergency response um, to try to, organize things to bring in access to legal professionals to healthcare to a safe space for children to access remedial education um you know dealing with injuries and sickness and all that kind of stuff so that that kind of took over what we were doing and really ramped up what we were doing you know we we were kind of running occasional programs and things like that and then this, I guess, consumed everything. Um, and we ended up setting up a, a centre for the community to come and access these things out there. Um, and, you know, people were living under bits of tin and tarp um, and when it rained it would flood up to your waist. Um, and it was it was a really, really awful, confronting and, and horrible place to be. Um so we, we worked there for a long time um, and tried to improve conditions over time with with other organisations that were working there. And um, that's probably fast-forwarded us to about 2009 um, when the global financial crisis happened and we lost all of our funding in a very short period of time and had to transition all of our programs to other organisations that were working in the community and eventually close things down, Um, which was really, really tough, actually. Well, considering you you sort of, something like that, I think you would have to body and soul put into it, you become emotionally invested, you know, it's not like, going to a normal nine to five every day of somebody else's business and drawing an income like that's humanitarian work I'd imagine would be very emotionally draining yeah absolutely it definitely became my life um every Mm. every fiber of my being was was that um and that's not a healthy thing um I was I was very young I was 23 at the time um very naive uh Mm -hmm. very gung-ho um, I made a huge amount of mistakes, so many mistakes I cringe to think about them. Um, but I, I think, you know, ultimately that experience of, of living and working in Cambodia and working particularly in human rights has, you know, made me 
who I am, but also made me more critical of of this sector and and what we do and and keen to make sure other people don't make the same mistakes. Um, when when we did close it down, I wasn't actually in Cambodia anymore. I had left to come back to Australia at that point because I was pregnant with my first child. Um, and I had also left because I was completely and utterly burnt out. Um, and, you know, I guess working in human rights and, and this would resonate with other people who work in, you know, the human rights sector or indeed like conflict zones or disaster zones, your stress systems, your cortisol is always up, you know, you, you're hypervigilant to real or perceived danger. Um, and that is exhausting on a, on a cellular level. (laughs) Did you have physical threats made against you for dealing in this sort of, if you're Um, hypervigilant about danger, were you, did you feel like you were in danger dealing with this humanitarian issue? Um, yeah, sometimes, I mean, we were pretty like working in human rights in Cambodia, you do have to take certain precautions around your safety. Um, you know, a lot of colleagues of mine have been arrested number, a number of times for working on the same issues that I have, um, you know, having, just making sure your communications are secure, uh, making sure you're not being followed, um, yeah, I, I think I wouldn't say I ever feared for my, my life <laughs> in that mm-hmm. sense, but definitely, you know, being aware of your safety and taking precautions, um, it takes a toll over time. Were there instances where you were followed personally? Uh, yeah, yeah, we were followed. Um, I mean, we, <laughs> the human rights organization that I was working with um, was supporting community activists that were protesting against forced evictions. Um, And there's a lot of money involved in, in forcing people off their land and um, stealing it to build developments with overseas money. And so supporting those activists is actively threatening the livelihoods of these people who are committing human rights abuses. Um, and the government was complicit in, in this. So yeah, it's, it's a dangerous space to have worked in. Um, but you know, it quickly becomes your normal as well. And it's not until you come back, uh, to Australia or wherever you happen to be that you kind of go, Oh, that's, (laughs) it's really not normal. (laughs) Well, yeah, you would. You, I mean, it's such a huge chunk of your life, and certainly being so young, being overseas and dealing with that, like it would be a bit of a shock coming back, going, "Oh, the whole world's not like this." I forgot that Australia's not like that. Yeah, wow. look, it was rough. I I did make sure that I um, came to Australia fairly regularly when I lived there, just mm. to you know connect with family. I had a partner here, um, also just to run my organization and fundraise, um, but also to get out and, and have some perspective. And, you know, I can say it's not normal to live in that environment, but that's just me from my privileged perspective, having grown up in Australia, it's, it's, you know, that's my normal, but millions and millions of people all over the world, that life that I'm talking about over there is their normal. Um, so yeah, it's it's really subjective, but it, it was hard to come back full time, um, and we closed down Future Cambodia Fund because of the funding issue. Uh, literally the day before my first child was born. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was, it was kind of letting go of one baby and and having another. <laughs> oh, so much downtime in that though, is there? No, and I, and I mean, I look back and think, wow, that was stupid. <laughs> well, you probably you probably didn't have much control over the timing of, you know. No, no, I didn't. But I was a very I was very stressed in that pregnancy as well, um, as you can imagine. You know, we're trying to save the organization, the feeling of having twelve Cambodian staff members 
that I had to let go and, and a whole community of people and programming that, you know, that were reliant on what we did to some extent. Um, so there was a lot of stress. And then also, I guess, that internal sense of failure, you know, like I couldn't do it, even though I tried my absolute hardest to make that work, I, it didn't work. And that, that was tough. And probably it took me a long time to get through that. Um, and then also to process that as well as having a newborn baby was, it was a lot. (laughs) Mm. I don't have children and I can only imagine how hard that would have been dealing with a lot of that processing. Yeah. So after a couple of kids, you went back in, you put you, you dipped your toe back into the human rights side of things. Yeah. Look, I I probably didn't completely get out um so I guess it's that thing of once you're once you're in you're in (laughs) um I'm an activist at heart you know it's social justice is I guess what drives me to do what I do um but having two kids with it with an 18 month age gap between them you know it's it's hard to be really into it and to live here um but I, I kept my toes in, I guess. And then at the same time, though, I was pretty disillusioned with the, the sector itself, um, having dealt with donors, having seen UN agencies do work in, in country that was ineffective and not helpful, having seen all the money go to bigger organisations and nothing go to smaller organisations who were having a big impact. I was pretty kind of, I don't know, I was just like this. Jaded. Yeah, jaded. This whole system Mm -hmm. is broken. It's broken and it's wrong. And and also coming to a a slow realisation that people like me are part of the problem, you know, people like 23-year-old gung-ho stars in their eyes, idealistic me actually do cause a lot of harm to communities because we don't know what we're doing and we make a lot of mistakes. And yet at the same time, we are lauded by our communities at home and we're given all this encouragement and awards. You know, I won this, I won a bunch of awards for my work there and I, I was like, but, but well, this is part of the problem. You know, our society encourages young people to do this and we shouldn't be doing this. Well, that's interesting that you said that because at one hand you mentioned that you were disillusioned because all the money was going to the big, big corporations that were not as effective and missing out on the small purse, the small little guy that was having a big effect. And then on the other hand, you've just said, what I was doing was causing damage and I probably shouldn't have been there doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I guess the, the two sides of the coin there is that, I mean, when I talk about organizations, small organizations, grassroots organizations that are doing good things, I'm not necessarily referring to mine (laughs) or organizations that were started by young people like me, but Mm -hmm. there are a lot of, you know, grassroots small organizations run by experienced people who do know what they're doing, but struggle to access the funding. Um, and, and that means that their, their programs, no matter how good they are, don't get supported. And then you get someone like me or, you know, other people that have been in a similar position to me. Someone I'll mention is Tara Winkler, who won the same award. We won the I won the Young Victorian, sorry, the Victorian Young Australian of the Year Award, and she won it in New South Wales. Uh, She set up an orphanage in Cambodia. You know, you get these young white kids who go and do something that seems, you know, it seems heroic, I guess, to the community back here. Like, oh, wow, they're sacrificing their young lives to serve these poor Cambodian children. Um, and we get held up as the example of, of what selflessness looks like and, and what, you know, what being a hero or a good person looks like, but there's absolutely no 
no questioning about the effectiveness of what we're doing there or whether it's wanted or needed or what the impact is or whether we're qualified to be doing this. No one asks those things. So hang on, are you saying that Tara shouldn't have won the award and what she's doing is not great? Oh, Tara would say that she wouldn't have won, shouldn't have won the award. Um, Tara's a good friend of mine, so I can say that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was worried that I was going to have to start um, no, no. bleeping out names and stuff. I was like, oh, no, godly. No, no. And Tara and I have, you know, we've been through a very similar experience in our lives and in the same country and, and had the same things happen. And you know, Tara, Tara's been on her own journey around this of she first started out volunteering in an orphanage, realised that, raised a lot of money for it when she came back to Australia, sent money over there, went back, realised that it was completely corrupt and the kids were being abused and she rescued a bunch of kids out of this orphanage and started her own orphanage. And, you know, she was Well, that all- sounds... That sounds like a good thing if she's taken them out of an abusive situation, though. Absolutely it does. But what you what happens later down the track is that Tara eventually learns to speak Khmer so she can communicate with the kids. And the first thing they're saying to her is, can we go home? I, I want to see my parents. I haven't seen them for ages. You know, and that kind of starts off this, what? I thought you were orphans. Mm. No, we're not orphans. And so Tara went on her own journey around this of, of going, well, how do we, this is not right that these kids are not orphans uh, and they have families and why aren't we supporting their families? Why are we removing their ch- children from them? And then that kind of opened up a big can of worms around, well, actually 80% of kids that live in orphanages are not orphans. And most of them have been trafficked or um, put in there because there's no access to support for families to keep their kids with them. So hang on a minute. I just want to, so 80% of kids in orphanages in Cambodia are not actually orphans. Globally. Globally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And where does that stat come from? Uh, that comes from a whole lot of different pieces of research from um, UN agencies and other independent bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the, the vast majority of kids that live in orphanages, and when I say orphanage, I'm, I'm using it as a catch-all term, but any kind of residential care institution where children live with paid or volunteer caregivers in a, in a non-family environment. So it might be children's shelters, children's homes, children's villages, orphanage, institution, care home, boarding school. It could be known as anything, really. And that's documented from the UN? Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so... <sighs> I think, you know, you start scratching the surface of, of this issue and you realise that there's a lot more to it than, than it seems on the surface and something that can seem very good is not generally as good as you think it might be. Hmm. Hmm. So once you started, was it Tara's sort of in? investigation and realization that this is an issue how you came about dealing being an advocate for these sorts of institutions had is that Uh, sort of how it tied in well no not really I think Tara was very much on her own journey um and was was also quite outside positioned outside the expat community in Cambodia Tara had had a lot of media about her and they'd done an Australian story and they called her the orphan rescuer and there was a bit of, I guess, dubiousness about what Tara was doing amongst the NGO community. Um, And also Tara lived in a pretty isolated community so wasn't really connected in with the wider community. Um, But kind of around the same time as this was all happening for Tara and she was going through her process of realisation and change, um, 
I had met up with a colleague called Rebecca who had also lived in work, lived and worked in Cambodia for many years in the child rights space and we met for a coffee in Melbourne and we were talking about um, this issue that we were both involved in. Of uh, we we're, were involved in an initiative called the Better uh, the Better Care Network and they ran something called Better Volunteering Better Care. And it was, it was a network that was designed to try to improve uh, volunteering practice in countries like Cambodia because over the years I was there, I noticed a huge influx of backpackers that were coming to volunteer and at the same time a huge uh, increase in the number of orphanages that existed and you're kind of going, oh, all these people are coming to volunteer in orphanages, but there weren't any orphanages there before. And where are they getting these kids? So that was kind of the first inkling that something was wrong. And so we we got involved in this movement, Better Volunteering, Better Care, which was designed to try to, to, to stem this growth of this industry, which it is an industry. And... Um, yeah, Rebecca and I were back in Australia and we were sitting down and we we're going, look, you know, we can try to do something in Cambodia and in every other country this is happening, but if we don't stem the flow of people and money and resources from places like Australia to orphanages in Cambodia, then we're going to get nowhere. We, we need to do something here in Australia. So we decided to set up a group called Rethink Orphanages, which was an, is a network um, of organisations from all different sectors that have some sort of impact on, on this issue. Um, and, and that would be, you know, education providers, so schools and universities that take school groups to volunteer in orphanages, um, that would be churches or faith groups that do the same thing, mission trips or fund orphanages. Um, and then you've got the tourism sector, which facilitates trips to orphanages and, and funding. So we, we really thought we need to do something about it here. And that's, that's kind of how it all started. So when you're saying that you need to stop the money coming from Australia, what how do you how do you do that because people inherently don't understand the problem and they think that they're doing a good thing donating or setting up these orphanages so what did that education process look like what did the network the rethink orphanages do or what does it do it's a good question uh and and it's a it's a massive issue <laughs> um and we had to tackle it from all sides it well, you you can't just go from the angle of, okay, we'll get schools to stop doing that or we'll talk to the tourism sector because there are so many associated, I guess, issues and barriers that prevent change in all of those various spaces. Um, you know, from the school's perspective, you've got often private schools, wealthy kids um, going on these trips that are facilitated by the tourism sector, so for-profit tourism companies. Um, and the motivation for schools is that parents, it, it's attractive to parents that they will send their child to a school that does these trips. Uh, they want their child to have these experiences. For tourism companies, they are making a lot of money out of students going to do these trips. Um, for faith groups, you've got a very different motivator. You've got this imperative to save souls, essentially. Um, you know, for, for each for each sector, for the charity sector, you, you've got people truly believing that they're saving vulnerable children and this is the right way to do it. So from a behaviour change perspective, it's huge and really, really tough. Well, because I, and I would imagine that it would be because all of those things that you've just mentioned, the schools, the education and probably even the, the travel industry doesn't, they probably don't actually realise that there's an issue. They think that they're going over and doing good. Absolutely. Everyone thinks that they're going over and doing good. So the... <laughs> 
you know, it's a process of, of education, obviously. Um, you know, here's the facts and figures. 70 years of research tells us that children who grow up in institutions are inherently harmed by that experience and that harm is lifelong and intergenerational. So there's one, there's one kind of statement or fact there. We don't have orphanages in Australia. And if we did, you couldn't turn up and just volunteer in there un, unvetted. You couldn't, or unqualified, um, you know. Do so, we not so have orphanages? Really? We don't. No, we don't. And we had a royal commission into the abuse and harm caused by the orphanages that we did have. And so, you know, you, so, you have to ask why one standard here and we'll accept something very different elsewhere because they're a poorer country. So what what do we have, the foster care system? We have the foster care system in Australia. Um, we do have something called small group homes, which are for children that cannot be placed in foster care, generally older children, teenagers, that live in a very small family-like supported environment. Um, we do not have orphanages and there's really, really good reasons. Orphanages are, are inherently damaging to children. Hmm. So not all orphanages over in Cambodia, though, are going to be um, ripping kids out of homes and with parents. And how do you know the good ones? There's no such thing as a good orphanage. Oh, that's controversial, eh? Right. I'm happy to say it over and over again. There is no <laughs> such thing as a good orphanage. Um, there's certainly a bad orphanage, uh, but I would say that moving, you know, along that scale from bad orphanage is what we would call a best practice residential care facility. But there's nothing good about an orphanage. There's nothing good about children living in an institutional environment and not in a family environment. You're saying it's still a family environment being like a foster care situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so if we look at what's called the continuum of care, which is, is what we use when we're looking at children who cannot uh, be with their biological parents for one reason or another, whether that's a short-term or a long-term thing, the very first thing that we look for on the continuum of care is a kinship placement. So is there a relative around where we can place the child and support that relative to, to have the child while we deal with the issues that are preventing the child from living with their biological parent or parents? So that's kind of the first step is kinship. And that may become permanent if, if you can't resolve the issues that are causing the removal in the first place. The next step on that is looking at foster care. And that's, again, supported. So how do we support foster carers to deal with children and, and house them and feed them and clothe them and educate them um, and have professional foster carers? So that's the next step. And again, Is this in Cambodia or in this Australia? This is everywhere. This is everywhere. everywhere. So the same, okay. same standards apply, whether they're Cambodian children or whether they're Australian children. This is the process. And... The next step, if, if foster care is um, not able to resolve uh, the issue with the family and the child can't be reunified, then it's looking at a domestic adoption, um, so adoption in country. If that's not possible, then we're looking at international adoption and that should be an absolute last resort after all other avenues have been exhausted uh, and generally using that continuum, the only kids available for international adoption would be ones with significant health issues that can't be resolved in country. Now, you'll notice at no point on that continuum did I talk about an orphanage or residential care. And the reason for that is because a residential care environment should only ever be used in an emergency and for a maximum of three months while another one of those options is organised. What I think people listening to this is going to be two, two questions that they're going to say, well, that's all very well in a Western situation where there's money and funding, but in a third world situation, 
is that a, is that actually a reality if there's no funding and culturally the foster system isn't established? And secondly, they're going to say, you like, what qualifications do you have to talk with such authority on this? So just answer <laughs> yep. those Yes. Yep. Yep. So I guess on the first one is that actually in in these countries uh, there are childcare systems, child protection mm-hmm. and childcare systems that do have foster care and do have domestic adoption facilities and do prioritise the rights of the child. The problem is that all of the funding from people here that want to help children goes to orphanages, not to supporting that system to grow and strengthen. So there is a system set up Absolutely there is a system set up, but people want to support kids in orphanages because it sounds, you know, it sounds like they're worse off, right? And the other Mm. thing is investing in prevention. How do we prevent children from being separated from their families in the first place and ending up in that system? We should be pouring our money into family strengthening and prevention, making sure parents have access to mental health care support, parents have access to employment, vocational education, making sure kids are in school, making sure parents parents know how to parent and are supported to do that. Orphanages are the end result of a lack of investment in preventative care for children and and system strengthening. The other thing is it takes, it costs 12 times more to bring up a child in an orphanage than it does to support them in a family, even if it's not their own. And of those, uh, of all the kids in orphanages and those 80% that have, uh, that are not orphans, that have one or more living parents, the vast majority of those parents want their children with them and if they had the support to do so, they would. Poverty is never a reason for a child to be removed from their family and most of these kids are in there because of poverty one way or another. So it's a really complex issue but orphanages are not the answer. Removing children from their families just because they're poor is not the answer. And, you know, it, it does seem simplistic and easier to support kids if they're, if they're in an orphanage altogether but it, it's really, really, really harmful. I hope that mm. answers it for you. <laughs> It does. I have other questions, but I want you to answer the second question yeah. first. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, the second question, what, what, what authority do I have to say this? Um, I guess I've worked in this sector for 17 years now. Um, yeah. it's been my, it's been my life's work for the past six years. Um, I've spoken extensively to children who grew up in orphanages and are now adults, to child protection organisations. I'm a child protection practitioner myself. Um, I set up Freethink Orphanages Network. I've worked with tourism companies all over the world, child developmental experts. Um, we, we know the evidence is incontrovertible. We know it's harmful for children to be in orphanages and we have to prioritise a different way. It's, it's, it's not okay to have one standard here for our children and to accept something very different in another country. How do we get to a stage where not-for-profits, big and small, are redirecting their focus to preventative measures and a foster care system? Yeah, it's a good question. And you'll find that not a single one of the large not-for-profits support institutionalisation of children at any level. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, so directing your funding to any of those big organisations is great because they are working on system strengthening um, and they are they have made very public statements and commitments not to support residential care or orphanages. Um, so, so that's a start. It, it's also telling that a lot of the, a lot of organizations are 100% funded. Sorry. A lot of orphanages are 100% funded by private donors. 
So they do not receive government funding or institutional funding because it's very well accepted that this is not an appropriate way to care for vulnerable children. Well, I think that's an important point as well. So these orphanages are purely operating off mums and dads. Mums and dads and corporations donating to them directly. Yes, and tourism companies. Right. Yes, who bring their volunteers through, charge their volunteers a lot of money and bring their volunteers through. Uh, And they're there for for a placement. And that's how these orphanages make money as well. And in the process are exploiting the children in their care. So with the Rethink Orphanages program or network that you've established, you're going out to corporations and explaining this to them and saying, hey, what you're doing to the schools is is not great. This is this is the reality of the situation. Is yeah, we, uh, so we're a membership organisation. So we engage with um, businesses, schools, non-profits, government, uh, at all different levels, particularly uh, one of the big ones is the tourism sector and get them to make commitments around not supporting orphanages or, or taking tourists there, not donating to orphanages, not visiting them as a volunteer. So so there's that, there's, there's making public commitments and public statements around that, but there's also changing practice. So changing policy, educating staff about why this this is not going to be happening anymore and then i guess the the bigger overarching theme that is really important to talk about is the government stuff so you know behavior change is tough and takes a really long time um but if you can get policy change that actually prevents this from happening uh, that's a that's a faster road to behaviour change. So we focused pretty heavily on government here in Australia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were were deeply involved in the inquiry into whether Australia should have a modern slavery act. And um, that was a couple of years' work for us, and and it resulted in the government defining orphanage trafficking, which is the movement of children into and between orphanages as a form of modern slavery, um, which uh, is a prosecutable offence. Um, so that that was a big win for us and that's kind of, uh, I guess, cascaded down into various government departments. We had the Federal Minister for Education issue a directive to Australian schools not to participate in orphanage tourism. We've had the Australian Charities Not-for-Profits Commission uh, put together guidance on um, setting up orphanages and whether you can establish as a a, a new charity, uh, as an orphanage in Australia. Um, We've worked with uh, the Australian Federal Police. We've worked with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who came out with a big campaign about volunteering, um, child safe volunteering. So there's been a lot of change at the government level, um, which has been really, really important. Um, Australia was the first country to recognise orphanage trafficking as a, as a form of modern slavery and other countries are looking to follow suit, which is really exciting. So is that sort of the next step now, pushing other other countries because I'm, I'm assuming that Australia is not the only one that's been naive about the reality of the orphanages over there and the, and no. the funding situation. No, uh, Australia is just, so is I guess, the first. The next... <laughs> yes. So is that yes. the next step to push other Western countries to be like, hey, this is an issue, implement yes. this in terms of the modern slavery? Okay. Yep. So we have uh, Rethink Orphanages Europe and Rethink Orphanages North America now, Um, Mm -hmm. and they're both working on a similar agenda to get that high-level policy change happening. Um, And that's, you know, that's really important that this is happening everywhere, that, that 
we, what we call in sending countries, so these these wealthier countries that are sending the people and the money and resources. But also it's really important to note that at the same time there are organisations working really, really hard in each country, uh, which we would call a receiving country, so like Cambodia, Nepal, Sri Lanka, India, Thailand, working really, really hard to do the same on that side to make it not possible to volunteer in orphanages, to make it not possible to set up a new orphanage, to improve conditions in existing orphanages and have proper registration and regulations and to, as we were talking about before, strengthen the child protection system to prevent kids from ending up in there in the first place. Oh, that's a big mandate, but it's so important to do, Lee. Like, has it just sort of taken over a life of its own when you sort of realised this was that first conversation from the coffee that you were having with Rebecca to now implementing policy within a country and then pushing to do the same thing in other countries around the world? Look, yeah, it definitely took on a life of its own and, and, and Rethink Orphanages is well beyond me now, um, yeah. which, you know, at, at one time was a bit hard, you know, a bit hard to let go, yeah. um, but also incredibly stressful few years. Um, and I worked on, on particularly in a coordination role for Rethink Orphanages for two, just over two years, and that was basically a full-time job that was unpaid on top of my other work and so eventually I kind of stepped back from that coordinator role and um, Rethink Orphanages came under the banner of another organization called Better Care Network which which kind of coordinates the various hubs as we call them now the Rethink Orphanages hubs. What Um, was sorry what was the name of the umbrella? Better Care Network. Better Care Network yep. Um, and so I still sit on the, the board or the steering, the steering committee for Rethink Orphanages Australia. And I'm, I'm still heavily involved in the issue, but not so much the, um, you know, the, the day-to-day operations of it. Well, I think it's sort of so big now and in so many different continents that you, it'd be hard to have your fingers so heavily involved in it. No, and I, I, I don't necessarily want to be as involved as I was, you know. Yeah. I think it, it was all-consuming and I guess that's part of my, my character. <laughs> I do do that. I get very, very consumed in what it is that I'm working on. Um, but, you know, this, this particular issue, children outside of family care um, and child protection is a, a very consistent um, theme throughout my whole career. Um and it's it's not something that I, I'll not be involved in. Well, I think it's from a random pit stop of before I come back to Australia, I'm going to work in Cambodia. It sort of has very much been a pivotal turning point in your life from the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that choice to uh, volunteer in Cambodia has profoundly changed my life. Um, and for the better, you know, I think it's, it's, I, I, I don't know what I'd be doing. <laughs> well, we spoke earlier and you were saying that you started this and you hadn't, like you got expelled from school and before you went over, like you, you sort of just went over to really refine yourself. Tell me about your early days at school. Yeah, I um, I did get expelled from school at the end of year 10 um, and I didn't – I went back to school and I finished year 11 but I didn't go on to – I think I started year 12. It's all a bit of a blur to be honest. Um, but <laughs> I, I never really fit in in terms of the education that, approach to school I really struggled with I guess mainstream or traditional forms of education Mm. I always I always got good marks but I behaviorally I just wasn't was kind of railing against authority from a pretty young age um and also just didn't like to go to school I didn't want to be there 
Um, and, and so that, I guess, culminated at the end of year 10 in, in me getting expelled from my school um, and I guess kicked off a, a pretty tumultuous few years and, and eventually kind of coming out of secondary education, just having no idea what I wanted to do or be and, and being pretty lost. And like I said at the start, always wanted to to get out of here. I always wanted to go overseas. I think I on some level probably thought the answer was would would come to me if I got to be in different places and see different things. Well it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, it did. You obviously knew at a cellular level that that was going to happen. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, Lee, what's 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 left now to do in Australia? You've changed. You've you've been in, in um, what's the word? Heavily involved, I suppose, in terms of the policy shift and um, legislation. What's the next step now? Um, so I I run a, a business that works with. Um, organizations, businesses, uh, foundations and trusts to, uh, I guess, really improve the way they engage with doing good. So that's kind of come out of, of that whole Rethink Orphanages journey for me is that realization that people aren't doing this because they want to cause harm. People genuinely mm. think that they're doing the right thing. You know, whether it's a company, whether it's an individual, whether it's a not-for-profit, we can all do better. Um, and and when we know more and we know better, we do better. And so a lot of my work now is really around supporting those entities to improve their practice, improve their culture and their values and how they engage with this process of, of doing good. And a lot of that work is unpacking what it means to be a good person or a good organization or to do good um, and, and why you want to do it in the first place. What's the motivation for doing that? Um, and I guess there's a reflective process around like recognizing that a lot of the reason we all do good or engage in what we think is good is because we get something out of it and that it's okay to admit that it's okay to, to do it because you're getting something out of it. What's not okay is if what you're doing is causing harm and you are uninformed about that. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my work at the moment is how do we do better at doing good and how do we make it easier for people to access the information they need to make good decisions around where they put their money and their resources and their time. So if a corporation says, this is something that we need to look at and be reflective of. They would come to your company and say, help guide us through this process. Yeah. Is that what yeah. You, okay. So yeah, we work on strategy. Uh, we do audits of what people are already doing. We also um, have a learning platform where people can um, provide access to their employees to online courses and masterclasses around issues like, decolonization, what it means to be an ally, uh, culture and values, improving practice, things like that. Okay. Um, that's a fairly big umbrella in terms of the, what was it, decentralization or something? De decolonization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a big one. Um, and obviously, you know, as a, as a company, we are not – experts in all of these issues um, and that's why we engage we we do engage experts to teach our courses and to support our clients I think it, it is a big it is a big mission um, and we we work to kind of I guess for, for me it's really come out of this recognition that people don't know what they don't know People yeah. in, you know, people do want to do the right thing, but everything's so mixed up in marketing and, and greenwashing and all of these things that it can be really hard to decode what is right and to understand what is important to you as a company or an individual. 
So that's what we do. My company is called Alto, mm-hmm. uh, A-L-T-O, and our learning platform is called Alto Learn. So if they just go to alto.com, they'll it's be able to find it? altoglobalconsulting.com. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes for the for the podcast. Thanks. Well, Lee, it's been a pleasure. I certainly didn't know that there was an issue at all in regards to the orphanages. I was one of, I was in the camp of, oh, well, they're a good thing because they're helping out the children, giving them a roof over their head and, and so forth. So I had no idea. I was one yeah, of them ignorant, I suppose. And that's, you know, that's a perfect illustration. You don't know until you know. And when you know, that's when you change your behaviour. Um, mm. And I, I think that's the key there is is we have people that when they find out, they change their behaviour and think, okay, how can I do this differently? And then you have the other camp of people who kind of go, no, 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 I'm not accepting that because for them that's been a really important experience in their life and it's hard to acknowledge or accept that it might have harmed somebody. And I think that's... I think that is the big mindset shift in terms of businesses actually and and individuals actually acknowledging that although they had great intentions, they actually have to say that was actually damaging and that's a really hard thing, particularly for companies if they've been supporting a particular orphanage or charity or something that hasn't been you know, above board in, in some regards to sort of put their hand up and say, hey, actually we're going to change this tactic now. So. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've, I've worked with a number of companies and, and that is my advice and we have done that is to fall on your sword, acknowledge mm. that you made a mistake, acknowledge that with the information you had at the time you had it, you made the choice that you thought was right. But now that you have other evidence and, and information, then you're changing and, and here's the process that you're going to go through and here's why. And do that publicly. Well, it sounds like Elto is a great resource for companies to start in. Please go to that website, everybody, and educate yourself on it. Um, rethink Orphanages, Better Care Network. Lee, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 